Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, welcome to All Things Tudor. I'm Deb Hunter, and today I have two very special guests, and we have an announcement for you. I'm here with Terrence Hawkins and Dr. Norman Jones. So, gentlemen, how are you doing today? I'm fine. I am well, thank you. Well, thank you. Um, Terry, I see on your CV, uh, literature, writing, you were the founding director of the Yale's Writers' Conference. Can you share more insight on your career with us? Yeah, uh, I have. I now have three books out and finally have them all under the same publisher. Um, my first novel, which was recently reissued in a revised second edition, is, uh, is called The Rage of Achilles. It's a novelization of the Iliad in uh, what I describe as modern and sometimes graphic language. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how a Bronze Age War would have actually worked. I had uh, my second novel is called American Neolithic, uh, which is set in what I described at the time as a moving target dystopian near future. Um, the dystopia, <laughs> dystopia came home to roost, didn't it? And uh, <laughs> my third book, which is a short story collection called Turing's Graveyard, I, I'm very pleased to say, and believe me, this really did make, make my day, was compared by book list to The Twilight Zone, which to somebody who grew up watching The Twilight Zone in real time uh, was really quite a compliment. As to the ale thing, uh, I, I got the idea after a small press book fair in Pittsburgh to see whether Yale would lend me a dining hall or something for a weekend so I could do a, a, small, press, uh, a small press event, maybe have some speakers. Uh, and the idea just kind of grew from there. Uh, it, by the time uh, I stopped running it, we had over 300 participants from every continent except Antarctica. Uh, and it ran for a total of three weeks every summer. That is so impressive. So impressive. Thank you. And Norm, on your CVSC, Cambridge, Harvard, Oxford, Royal Historical Society, Society of Antiquaries, Tell us more about your stellar career, please. <laughs> well, I, I think we should start with the fact I'm an Idaho farm kid uh, that shouldn't have gone to any of those places. Uh, but I was lucky. I mean, you know, the, the kind of world I grew up in, I stuck out because I was a rather strange child. I read a lot of books. And so lots of teachers took good care of me. And I did an undergraduate at Idaho State, and I had superb teaching there. And they just passed me on to the University of Colorado and at one point, one of my professors at Colorado said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to study Tudor parliaments. And he said, well, I know just the man, Jeffrey Elton in Cambridge, I'll write him. And so he wrote to Elton and Elton said, what do you want to study? And I made a dissertation proposal and he said, I've had a word with the, the university, you're admitted. I've had a word with the college, you're admitted. Now apply. <laughs> so 
<laughs> that's that's how I ended up in Cambridge. And and uh, Sir Geoffrey Elton, at the time, was the leading Tudor historian in the world, and uh, it just opened up a, a world of experiences to me. And so postdocs at Harvard and Cambridge and Oxford and things like that all kind of follow out of that. Uh, I got my first and only teaching job at Utah State University, and they said, well, that'd be a good first job, and it was, and I taught there for 42 years, but I love to write, and, and I've, I've been driven by a, a question that really fits the study of the tutors. I'm very, very interested in if people believe something, what do they do with it? And if you look at the Reformation era, you can see people going, I was a Catholic, I'm now a Protestant, but what changes? How do you change your life when you change your ideology like that? Um, and so it sort of sucked me down the rabbit hole to in, into the world of the Elizabethans, because that's the generation that, or the generations in which you can see all this change happening as you go from the grandparents who were real medieval Catholics to the grandchildren who are raving Puritans and want to move to Massachusetts. So I keep playing with that question. And every book I write really is about that question. Is how, do, how do you deal with very rapid intellectual social change in a world that's, that's busy doing all these things that we're used to, like globalizing? So I've just been having a very good time in my career, and I love to teach, and, and I've been an administrator as well. But everything I do kind of turns around the fact that what I really like to do is to dig into the mysteries of how Tudor people made sense of their world. Well, thank you for that. And... That brings another question. Terry and I were having a conversation a couple of weeks ago, and someone told him that during the Tudor era, people thought about religion all the time. Do you believe that to be true? Well, you couldn't think without thinking about religion, in the sense that all your reference points were essentially religious. We're used to living in a world where you've got a kind of a bifurcated brain where one side is your kind of spiritual side and the other side is your science side. <laughs> there, there were no positivists living in, in, the, in the Tudor world because the, the entire explanation system that, you're, that you live inside of is about how God created things and what order for what purpose. So I think in that sense, religion was absolutely constant. Now, did everybody spend all of their time on their knees? No, of course not. Lots of people were about as religious as we are, except that the way in which they made sense of their world was religious. So God's always there. Well, thanks. I think that helps people now understand a little more how they thought, because it seems like to me that we're very quick to judge the tutors by how we think and our standards. So apparently they had a completely different mindset than we do. Yeah, there, there's no doubt about that. I'm one of the things that happens in the 16th century, uh, across the century, is you go from, say, the reign of Henry VII, uh, which is still the Middle Ages, and the people think as medieval people think. And we would have found them very strange to talk to. But by the early 17th century, uh, you know, you could have had a conversation with, say, Sir Francis Bacon, and you probably would have understood each other. So part of the Tudor moment is this this tremendous change that's going on and then the breakup of one culture and the emergence of another yeah well actually that, that was a topic that that deb and i had discussed or a related topic that deb and i had discussed and that is why do why does the tudor period have so much appeal to to modern people to us and mm -hmm. i i thought that further to what you were saying part of the appeal is that 
it really is a bridge between the Middle Ages and the modern period. And conversely, I think one of the reasons the Plantagenets uh, have so little appeal to us is that by our standards, they were just so weird. I mean, they, <laughs> they, they look weird in their, I mean, they don't look like human beings. Uh, they look like waxworks. And um, similarly, I mean, their, their dynastic politics were, were so complex and, and so foreign to us that it's really hard to generate interest in them. The Tudors, on the other hand, even though they were different from us in many ways, especially the early Tudors, still seem to be driven by motivations uh, similar to ours. I, I think that that's about right. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm laughing about the Plantagenets and, and company because they are so hard to get your head around. I've been trying to, yeah. I'm working on a 16th century manuscript that actually tells the story of the Wars of the Roses. And uh, it's just hard to understand Henry VI. Uh, yeah. But but I think that's that's because by the, by the time we get to the middle of the 16th century, uh, we are in a world that is now shaped by the way the humanists are beginning to make sense of the world, and, and we are the inheritors of the world that they made, that sense that they made. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, they are our, our direct forebearers in some senses. Yes. Exactly. Now, I have a question for both of you. Why do you think Tudor history is so popular now, and why has it become a part of pop culture? Well, I, I think part of the reason is it has to do with, with the... Uh, something I alluded to earlier that Norm and I were talking about, and that is that they they are the earliest people we can understand. I mean, they're still very different from us and are we're drawn to them for that reason, um, but also they're comprehensible. So that's one thing. The other thing, though, is I, I've been thinking about this quite a lot, and that is that their politics, especially the early tutors, seem to be driven a lot more by personality and by um, and dogma than we see, you know, in the 18th century, for example. And the, the third factor, the third thing I think that's, that's going on is that we've been sort of primed, at least my generation has been primed for an interest in the Tudors simply by what, what we watched growing up. Uh, you know, the Six Wives of Henry VIII and uh, Elizabeth R., uh, um, with Glenda Jackson, and uh, it's almost as though there's been an accretion of, you know, kind of highbrow masterpiece theater, uh, media explorations of the Tudor period. So I think that uh, that every time Helen Mirren shows up as an aged Elizabeth, uh, that that rekindles that interest that's been burning under the surface for a long time. Well, I think that there's another piece of this too, which is the the creative arts are so powerful, mm. and the the you know I think we we have to see the Shakespeare thing in relationship to the Tudor thing, you know the anybody whose culture is is rooted in the English language is rooted in the Tudors, uh, and we just well or well another example I think about often is the effect of the prayer book. Uh, mm-hmm. Anybody who speaks English speaks prayer book English in lots of ways. I, I do this trick with my students where I, I say, dearly beloved, and ask them to finish the sentence. And very few of my students are Episcopalian or Anglican or anything else, but they can usually finish the sentence. Mm. Or, or, our Father who art. 
it's 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 a cultural world that we're still rooted in and the middle ages is not a cultural world we're rooted in unless you you kind of come in through the back door of of uh, game of thrones kinds of things those are both just excellent points and um i guess it's time to let everyone know that the three of us are starting an All Things Tudor journal. It's going to be a part literary, part history journal magazine for people who love All Things Tudor. And it's perfect that it's a, a digital read because the three of us met online. We're, we're in a world that allows these things now. <laughs> If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to, well, all things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in all things Tudor, select the option to join the group, and of course answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you. Uh, Deb, if I, if I could start by telling our origin story. Yeah. Um, it, it just so happened that I am a member of a Facebook group called the Chattanooga Writers Guild, which I'm a member of because I, I taught at the, uh, the very wonderful Meacham Writers Workshop in Chattanooga a couple of times. And I suppose it was middle of last year. Uh, I just happened to check in on the group, which I do perhaps once a year. Uh, and... Um, I saw that Deb had posted something about interviewing Dan Snow. So I, I responded that Dan Snow was one of the podcasts that had got me through the pandemic because the gyms were closed and I was walking seven or eight miles a day and podcasts were all I had to keep the mind alive. And Dan the Man was one of the guys who, who pulled me through. So uh, in any event, uh, Deb said, well, why don't you tell Dan? So I, I went to the website and posted a, a comment, and then Deb invited me to participate in an interview with Dan, uh, which led to an interview with uh, the Earl Spencer, um, as a result of which I insisted that my wife call me Sir Terrence, uh, and that did not work, of course, but I insisted that, you know, it went So he said, he said, by the way, my question was spot on, and I actually glowed. Um, but in, in any event, that, that led to us talking about this project, and, and here we are. I think I followed this completely by accident, didn't I? <laughs> I found you on LinkedIn. That's right. I was looking for a tutor expert in America, and you came up in my search. And, of course, we all know I'm not shy, so <laughs> I messaged <Yeah>. you. And, <laughs> um, you know, people are either going to tell you yes or no, and you answered me. And we've been—and I have to tell you, you're probably the only two historians I know that I did not meet through Twitter. So that alone is kind of newsworthy in <laughs> itself. But I think we're going to have great fun with all things Tudor— and I think it's going to be a great magazine journal for people who love Tudor literary works, Tudor historical fiction, as well as 
you know, the real deal Tudor history. Well, that's one of the things I'm excited about. Um, I, of course, spent my career writing about Tudor history as a, a professional historian. But I'm also very aware that there is this huge audience out there of people who are not professional historians, but who are really interested. And I've often wondered how, besides in the classroom, do you bridge that gulf? And the the world of historical fiction, uh, I've actually had several students who've gone on to write historical fiction, but, you know, as a professional historian, you're always kind of careful. Somehow it might pollute your pure springs if you read this stuff. Uh, and so I've, I've always been a little bit reluctant, but so many of my students become historians because they read historical fiction. So it just seems really natural that we have a conversation between the fictitious world and the research world, because we're all looking at the same stuff and probably fascinated by some of the same questions, but we don't always speak the same language. So if we can bridge that, it'll be a lot of fun. Well, would each of you mind letting our audience know what you'll be doing for the magazine, please? Well, I guess I'll, I can talk first. Uh, I, since the pandemic arrived, uh, have been thinking and researching plague in Tudor England. Uh, it seemed like a natural thing. I, I knew a lot about plague responses already from my research, but I'd never really gone into it in depth. Uh, and so I started thinking this will be a simple little story to tell. And it became more and more complex and, and looking at how they they do things that we would find very familiar. They practice social distancing. They practice quarantine. Uh, they close down crowded venues. They do all that stuff that we, we find very familiar. Uh, but of course, the way they think about why you do these things is so different than the way we do it. Uh, so what I'm going to contribute to the first issue of the magazine is a piece on uh, Queen Elizabeth's pandemic. The, the management of plague in Elizabethan England. And what I'm working on right now, or rather what I've, I've done so far, is uh, I solicited my friends in the historical fiction world uh, to provide us with some material, uh, some work in progress or previous work. And we were lucky enough to score an excerpt from John Crowley's work in, uh, actually soon to be released novel called Flint and Mirror, which uh, is set in Elizabeth's Irish Wars. Um, John had previously written uh, the Egypt uh, cycle, which featured in part uh, Elizabeth's court astrologer slash scientist, John Dee. I'm also working right now on a review of, I won't say neglected classic because it's been in print for 75 years, but a book that should, I think, get a little more attention in the same audience that was drawn to Wolf Hall. And that is HFM Prescott's The Man on a Donkey, which is a novel about the, uh, the pilgrimage of grace. And, and Norm had actually mentioned something that, that really made my ears prick up as I, as I work on this review, that the pilgrimage of grace is set 25 years into Henry's reign during the dissolution of the monasteries. And I hadn't fully appreciated until I revisited this book, the extent to which the dissolution, I mean, you know, the divorce was a big deal, breaking with Rome was a big deal, but dissolving the monasteries really destroyed rural communities to an extent that, that I had never fully appreciated. So that's been, just revisiting that book has been a fascinating and rewarding process. 
Yeah, it's it's a, a seismic moment. Uh, yes, exactly. The destruction of a culture. Yeah, and one thing I was thinking about, actually, uh, Norm, if I can kind of veer off into a tangent, the, the amount of money that Henry realized as a result of the dissolutions that he then gave to his friends, uh, you know, the, mm-hmm. um, whether that is one of the things that seeded S-E-E-D-E-D, the development of the 18th century oligarchy. I mean, I throw that to you as the pro. Well, <laughs> it certainly created an oligarchy. I'm not sure about the 18th century. Uh, mm-hmm. Because vast amounts of, of real estate change hands. And owning real estate, of course, is the foundation of everybody's wealth and their social status. So I I have argued in one of my books on the English Reformation that one of the reasons the Reformation works is that there is so much real estate changing hands. It creates a whole class of people who have a self-interest in not going back to the old ways. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> an excellent point. When Mary Tudor comes along and says, let's all be Catholic again, the, the parliament essentially said, well, that's all very well. We don't mind about the Pope, but we're not going to give the land back. And yeah. so Mary and her counselors decided that they were the, the land would be treated as a ransom. If, you know, if you'd been captured by Muslim pirates, the people, Christians, would pay a ransom to get you back. Well, to get England back, they're going to have to let everybody keep all that property. So it's... It, it does create a, a group of wealthy people who have a, a deep vested interest in making sure the Reformation doesn't get reversed. Very interesting. And all of that is probably also taken with the Tudor era, even 500 years later, don't you think? Yes. Mm-hmm. So I have a, an interview with Tracy Borman. I'm happy to say, so look forward to that. And um, we will be publishing all things Tudor every quarter. The first one will be out on March 15th. Be looking for pre-order, I would say ads. We're not really sure exactly what we're going to do, but we'll have something for you out there. So you can go ahead and get it early and get it first. So March 15th is the date. And gentlemen, do you have anything else to add? Well, I'm looking forward to seeing how this evolves. I think we're going to have a great time as we build these bridges between the various Tudor worlds. I think so, too. I, I just think it's such—it's been so much fun working with you two, first off. And I look forward to not only the first issue, but moving on to the second one. Deb, you are a force of nature. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. And we'll also be doing a clubhouse for you. Stay tuned for information in our All Things Tutor group. And we're all over social media. So we will be in touch. So, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. And we'll talk to you later. Thanks for joining All Things Tutor. Thank you. Thank you. Great fun working with you. You've been listening to All Things Tutor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.